0: are continuing a series called Healthy Hearts. And this series is all about kind of stopping or slowing down for a minute and examining the condition of our hearts. The Bible talks a lot about our heart and God cares about the condition of our hearts. And so my question to you as we go through this series is how is your heart doing? Uh, We go through life and uh, we have issues, things happen. And we get discouraged, we get hurt, we get down, and uh, um, at times it'd be hard to kind of deal with that and get the healing we need in the flow of life, because we're just trying to make it. And so uh, every August, try to take some time uh, during this month, at least as a church, and kind of address that. And so we've been working through different uh, passages of Scripture and looking at different issues related to the heart and uh, So this week, we're, uh, in this message, we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 18, and so if you like to follow along in your Bible, that's where you want to be, where we're going to work through that chapter, Matthew chapter 18, and the title of this week's message is How to Win a Fight. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, if you remember your first fight. Um, I know none of you have ever fought, you're peace-loving people, but... Um, when I was a kid I remember in grade school first time I can remember being around any kind of fight like that other than at home with my younger brother which I always won those so it wasn't really fair but (laughs) but anyway uh, on the playground are you with me just trying to make sure you're with me this morning so on the playground uh, my good buddy Jimmy McDermott um, we're good buddies a little bit older than me and I remember I don't remember what grade I was in but I remember one day on the playground when we used to have recess uh, that he and another kid got in a fight, and it's physical, and they're rolling around in the dirt, and I don't know punches are being thrown, whatever's happening. And I just remember that I was going to help my brother, or my brother, my buddy Jimmy. I felt uh, uh, concerned for him, and I was angry at the other kid, and so I ran in and I kind of tried to place a kick, you know, on this other kid uh, to get him off of my buddy. And pretty quick after that, teachers came in, and they, of course, don't care for that kind of activity, extracurricular activity on the playground. And so we all got drug in, and it got sorted out. But how do you handle conflict? How do you handle conflict? Um, Do you stay calm, or do you get nervous and anxious? Do you stay level-headed, or does your temper flare and you see red? You kind of forget everything that happened, right? Those are the scary situations, but I don't know, which which way uh, do you respond? How do you respond or deal with it when you feel like you're being mistreated? Somebody is treating you the wrong way. How do you respond to that? Uh, Conflict is a part of life. And uh, the premarital counseling that Mary and I do with couples, we spend a whole lesson on conflict in marriage. And so uh, it's important to note, and as the lesson does, that uh, it's okay And to be expected to have conflict in marriage, because if you married correctly, (laughs) if you married correctly, you will be married to somebody that oftentimes has another uh, or different opinion than you. I mean, you know the rule, if you have two people in a room and they have the same opinion, then one of them isn't necessary, right? You know that rule? Uh, And so uh, it's okay to have a different opinion. In fact, you want to be with somebody with a different opinion because that is what makes the mixture uh, of a successful partnership. And so we try to help couples realize that conflict is normal, it's going to happen. But one of the keys is that you don't want to make your spouse um, the problem, right? You don't want them to be uh, the person or the issue. You want to identify the problem as being something that you guys are wrestling with. Because one of the greatest discouragements in marriages, and it leads to failure in marriage is bitterness and resentment. And that comes when the other person, you're blaming the other person for the conflict, you see them as the problem, and this uh, breaks down your relationship, right? And so we wanna see the issue or the problem is not the person. And so in order to win a fight, win a conflict, and be good at it, you gotta know what it is you're fighting, right? And so the truth is in this chapter, Matthew 18, Uh, Jesus is going to teach on a series of things that are all connected. It's one teaching, and it's going to help with this issue of what we are fighting against. And what Jesus is going to point out in this chapter is we're not primarily fighting each other, though there's a section of this chapter that's going to deal with conflict, but we're really fighting sin. Sin is the enemy. That is our biggest issue as a human race, and as a people. And um, the Bible tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual powers, right? Dark powers. We fight against evil. And sin is often what occurs, and we do sin against each other, which is going to be addressed today. And how do we respond to that? How do we handle it? But we need to remember what it is that we're fighting, who it is that we're fighting. Healthy hearts deal with conflict differently than wounded hearts right? Healthy hearts deal with conflict differently. And so we want to figure out how is it that we gain and maintain a healthy heart so that we can navigate the conflict that we're going to face in life, but we can navigate it. We can handle it the right way. And honestly, we need to learn to win at this fight. And so we move into chapter 18. We're going to find that Jesus or the whole thing, the whole chapter starts off with a question by his disciples and their question is about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been doing ministry on earth. He's he's been building momentum. There's been a response to him. He's teaching, he's doing miracles. People are, uh, uh, crowds are gathering to him. He's preached to huge crowds of thousands of people. He's got followers and his disciples see a movement building. They see what Jesus is doing and they get uh, interested. If a question that maybe is not uncommon, especially for these guys who are kind of at the middle of this thing, they asked Jesus about greatness. Who's going to be great or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, who's great and how do you get there? And they wanted an explanation of that. And so the first response that Jesus gives them is obviously different than what we experience or see in the world. We see greatness occur by those who are smarter, faster, push harder, and can impose their will on other people. Those are the people that achieve greatness. But Jesus is gonna have a different answer because of course Jesus has a different view of everything. And so the way the human race runs is opposite oftentimes to the way that God really is running. And so Jesus is gonna challenge them and answer the question in a way that's of course gonna kind of blow their minds with what they need to be thinking about in terms of greatness. But in this, he teaches the first skill also, that we need to have if we're going to win this fight against sin. And so the first character trait, the, the first skill, if you will, that they need to acquire, and so do we, to win this fight that Jesus teaches them, is they need to become childlike. Follow along as I read the first 10 verses of Matthew 18. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone, he goes on, who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye. Than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly father. Greatness. Jesus, who's going to be great? And Jesus, of course, throws an answer at them that they're going to grapple with and struggle with and not really understand probably. And to illustrate his answer, he pulls a little child into the middle of the group, and he points to the child as an illustration and says, you've got to be like a child in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. And those who are most like a child, okay, are going to be the greatest. So what is he referring to? Well, of course, the child, he doesn't mean we all have to become children, and he doesn't mean we need to be childish. Childish. Because childish is immature. But he's talking about childlike in some specific attributes and characteristics. And for him, initially, to get into the kingdom of heaven requires coming humbly, right? But with an, an awareness of my sin. And so to get into the kingdom of heaven, to access God, as we even talked about last week, I've got to have an awareness and acknowledgement and an admittance of my sin. That I need God. I need him. Okay? I'm not okay on my own. The greatest challenge for the human race and what keeps the most people out of heaven or from connecting to God and getting forgiveness of their sins is pride. And you know that pride is what caused, that was the devil's downfall. He fell out of heaven, right? He rebelled against God because he thought he could become God. And then he tempted Adam and Eve with the same temptation to make their own decision, follow their own will, do their own thing. And so Jesus reminds them, the disciples, that even to access God, you've got to put down the pride and have an awareness of your need. And you've got to turn from your sin, knowing that you have sin and are full of sin and that sin is what keeping, is what's keeping you from God. And so that's the childlike attribute, admitting sin, trusting God completely, relying on God for everything, basically relating to God like he is your father and that you need him, you're dependent on him for everything. This is how you get in. And then he says, of course, that humility, that posture of, um, of awareness of my position and my role. And so the battle against pride and ego becomes a real one um, for I can come to Christ and begin to grow and learn. And I can begin to think that I'm doing pretty good and that I'm better than others. And because I'm a Christian, I'm actually, um, I'm actually really good. And so Jesus says, no, those aren't the great people in the kingdom of heaven, uh, those folks are going to be at the bottom. The person that's at the top and those who are at the top are the ones who remain humble and they remain with an awareness of their need. And so then Jesus says, and anyone who welcomes one of these childlike people with a simple awareness of need, admittance of sin that come to God with that posture, right? And the ones that are humble, in other words, they continue to maintain that attitude of neediness and dependence and awareness of sin. Those are the folks that you need to welcome. If one of those folks comes into your midst, right, into your group here, the kingdom of heaven is talked about in this chapter, also the church, ekklesia is the Greek word. It just means gathering God's people, right? And so someone like that, this childlike person comes in, you want to welcome them like you're welcoming Jesus. So there's a great deal of awareness and welcoming environment for anyone who wants to come in who will take that posture. And we have people come to church all the time looking for God, awareness of need. And so we welcome them. Then he says, be careful that you do not lead any of these folks astray. If you set an example for them that's wrong, If you encourage them towards a sinful action or a behavior that's wrong, you need to be punished for it. And he gives the illustration of a millstone being tied around a person's neck and dropped in the ocean. Now, a millstone is this huge stone that grinds wheat. So it's massive. Um, And so tying that around your neck um, and taking you out to Lake Minotaur and throwing the rock in, right, the stone guess what you're gonna do? You're gonna go to the bottom of the lake and drown with the stone. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment, execution on a person who leads another childlike person who comes in looking for God an awareness of need, walking in very humbly to lead them astray is to go desperately wrong. And so we do not wanna be those people. We wanna be those people that are helping to lead those new uh, childlike believers That we also are maintaining, right, a childlike faith that we can lead them in the right direction. And then Jesus pronounced judgment on the world. Because the world always leads people astray. Always leads people to sin. I mean, look at the world today. In the 60s, we had the sexual revolution. The world says, sex is good. There's no restrictions on it. Do it however you want. That's the message of the world. Well, that's the opposite of what God says. And that leads to destruction. Of course, that is The temptation of the world that exists out there and everyone hears it and everyone's seen the message and everyone's pulled and drawn in that direction. Um, Look at uh, one of the issues that's really a hot button issue today and I don't mean to pick on any more than another but the idea that the way you were born, the gender you were born with, you do not have to uh, stick with. You can invent or reinvent or discover for yourself or create for yourself whatever gender identity you want to have, right? And so, this idea that um, a person is struggling with an awareness of who they are, and an acceptance of God's design for them, which we're all going to struggle with that at some degree, are encouraged down a road of changing that and moving in the direction they want to go in, um, because of their struggles, to even change their chemical, uh, the chemical composition of their body, to um, even mutilate it with surgeries to change it, to pretend that I'm a person that God didn't create me to be. And that's a serious problem. It's a serious issue, but that's how the world tempts people away, away from God. The world tempts tempts us into laziness rather than productivity, tempts us into chasing things and stuff and pursuing wealth and, and things, right? Instead of Uh, relying on God and following him. The world tempts us into uh, addiction. On and on and on, the message is the world. And Jesus says, the world will be judged for that because of that wickedness and because of that temptation that pulls the childlike people with a simple faith, with a dependence on God, awareness of need, who walk humbly, tempts them away, right? Down the wrong path. And then Jesus says, don't you be one of those people. Don't you be one of those people. <clears throat> you need to deal with sin in your own life. If you're one of those people that's leading and, um, and causing others to go astray, if you have a hand that's causing you to sin and you can't stop sinning, cut that thing off. Stop sinning. Like, get it dealt with, right? If your eye's causing you to sin, gouge it out. Stop sinning because you are setting an example by what you do that these other childlike faith people that are coming in very vulnerable, looking for answers. They're gonna look at your example and you're gonna lead them down the wrong path. Don't do it. Deal with that sin in your life. Deal with it violently. Now, Jesus isn't saying mutilate your body. No, he's just saying, don't continue to walk in sin. In the church, in the gathering of God's people, we need to have an awareness of our sin and a determination to move away from it. And we're going to see in this chapter we've got to help each other with that. But the stakes are very high because there are people looking for answers. They're looking for hope, and they're going to look to us as the people of God to set the example. And if we're tempting them to go in the wrong direction because of our behavior, we're causing a grave mistake and a huge error, and we're actually doing more harm than good. It's a very humbling thing for me to know that as a leader in God's church, as a spiritual leader, that the greatest sermons I will ever preach are based on the life I live. Um, That's very uh, sobering and humbling because I know myself and I know that my life is not where I want it to be or where it needs to be or where God wants it to be. And so I can preach and say the right things, but what I do is really what's gonna affect um, people the most. And same thing's true for you, for all of us. And we kind of see this show up in parenting where um, we can tell our kids what to do, but they're really gonna follow what we do. And I don't know if you remember a song um, a few years ago came out by Rodney Atkins called Watching You, and it's about a dad and a son. I have a hard time getting through it, but I'll try to do part of it. Driving through town, just my boy and me with a happy meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. Green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries, his fries went fly, and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old, my four-year-old said a four-letter word It started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, son, now where did you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you, eat all my food, and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. We got back home, I went to the barn, (laughs) bowed my head, and I prayed real hard, said, Lord, please help me, help my stupid self. Then this side of bedtime, later that night, turning on my son's Scooby-Doo light, he crawled out of bed, got down on his knees, he closed his little eyes, folded his little hands, and spoke to God like he was talking to a friend. And I said, son, now, where'd you learn to pray like that? said I've been watching you dad ain't that cool I'm your buckaroo I want to be like you eat all my food and grow as tall as you are we like fixing things and holding mama's hand yeah we're just alike hey ain't we dad I want to do everything you do so I've been watching you listen um, the things we do are the example we set and that's what people are going to follow and so Jesus is saying in this chapter. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, right, it's these simple, humble people. And those people need an opportunity to grow. They need a healthy place. They need good examples. And so deal with your stuff. Work on it. Fight against it, right? Win this battle with sin. That's our fight. It's against sin. And you got to win it because, because Jesus is relying on us to show others the way. Well, as he continues to teach, the next thing he teaches them is related to the heart of God Uh, related to and for those who wander away, the sinners, those who are walking without an awareness of God, without his forgiveness, without a relationship with him. And so God's heart is for the lost, is for sinners. And he's willing to do anything he can and everything he can to get them back. And so Jesus begins to teach this skill that we also need if we're gonna win our battle with sin, our fight with sin, is that we've gotta learn to bring back those who wander off continue reading in chapter 18, verse 12. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go, uh, go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Jesus saying that in this whole fight with sin, there are times where some of these childlike, faith-filled people that might have been you and might have been me are going to wander off. We're going to follow the breadcrumbs put out by the world, by the enemy, that tempt us away From following God, and we're gonna find ourselves in a place where we're lost again. We're we're lost. We're we're not not with God, right? And He goes, You gotta go after them. You gotta pursue them like God does. He drops everything He's got and He goes after them with everything He's got because they're hurting and they're lost and they're out there away from the body, the family, the church, right? The the kingdom of heaven. And so they need that to to be uh, connected to God. And so when those people who get offended and get isolated, and wander away, we've got to bring them back. we got to get good at this. This is the heart of God. If we're going to win the battle against sin, we've all wandered away at some time. And we need somebody to help bring us back. And so Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to fight for those sheep that wander away. We should feel that same urgency when someone wanders off. He says you should feel the same way as you do about something that's valuable to you. Sheep, of course, were part of their income. Um, This was part of their livelihood, producing for them so they can make a living. And so the value of a sheep was very high. And speaking to someone who owns sheep, that's their livelihood, that's their life. Each one of those sheep is named. They know them, they care for them, they protect them. If one's missing, even for a minute, they know it. And they do something with urgency to get that sheep back because they care desperately about them because they need that sheep, right? Um... A couple of years ago, it's probably been long, many years ago now, but Mary and I, you know, we got a checking account, right? And got your little debit cards and you're using them. And all of a sudden, one day, um, in checking the little bank account, started to see transactions popping up that were not from us, and the bank account starts getting drained really quick. <clears throat> and I had an emotional reaction to that. A little emotional, a little excited, you know? <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I dealt with that really quickly. And fortunately, bank was on top of it and everything, didn't lose all our money. Or if you lose something valuable to you, um, what do you do? How do you respond? Jesus is trying to help them understand this connection and get this heart that God has because if we're gonna win our battle against sin. We gotta get good at this. We gotta get better at it. Pursuing, being persistent and tenacious in our attempts to help people come to God, come back to God, right? Keep everybody in the group. This is what Jesus is talking about. And this has to do with the progression of thought that he's teaching regarding our battle and our fight against sin. And the reason he teaches this is because what comes next is that we need to help one another overcome sin patterns. And so, this progression of teaching is moving Jesus teaching how it works, who's involved, who's great, how are we supposed to approach this, how do we view it, how do we handle other people, how do we get God's perspective on this because this is how we're going to win. And so next he addresses this issue of helping one another overcome sin patterns. Now, this passage is perhaps one that you've heard before. It gets used a lot of times to deal with uh, sin, maybe in the church or with uh, with another you know believer that, that has wronged you or sinned against you. And so this is, you know, I've, I've certainly heard this talked about a bit and kind of am aware of it. And so understanding it though, becomes important to understand this whole context, this whole lesson that Jesus is teaching because it all fits together. It's not separate thoughts. And so it all fits together. And so here's, What Jesus says next regarding this skill of helping one another overcome sin patterns. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Go privately and point out the offense if someone sins against you. Go to them personally and point it out. If the other person listens and confesses, confesses is just agrees, so they listen to you and they agree. You know what? Yeah, that was sin, right? then you have won that person back. You've kept them in the group. You've kept them in the fold. You've kept them in the the body of Christ, like the church, right? The kingdom of heaven. You have kept them with everybody else. So this is your approach. Go win them back. Go confront the issue. You've got a, there's some convincing involved. There's some, you know, helping them understand involved. And then the goal is to win them back. Verse 14, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you, go back again. So that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, they're still unwilling to agree, then take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Um, so this is an approach that flows with the whole teaching of how to, to win the battle or win the fight against sin. And so what it's acknowledging, Jesus acknowledging is that there will be sin in the lives of other believers. And sometimes that sin is going to affect you. It's going to be done against you perhaps. Now it's interesting that, um, in the history of the Bible, you know we have different families of manuscripts, and those manuscripts are what we use to uh, to determine with accuracy our our Bible today. And so we have all these different copies and families of copies, and some of those manuscripts don't have the words against you. So in the first sentence, if another believer sins, is all it says, not against you. And so interesting that sin again is the issue, but people will sin and they do sin, and and they do. Uh, That sin at times is directed at you or affects you, like I said. And so here's a process to deal with it. If we see sin in another believer's life, we have a responsibility to go and help them overcome it, to win that battle in their own life. I need that in my life. You need it in your life. Very seldom are you going to win the battle against sin on your own. It's not how God designed it. It's not how it works. And so we need accountability of other people. We need that. And so we kind of have to be open to that. We have to be open to another person coming and saying, hey, listen, there's some sin in your life. And maybe that sin was against them. Maybe they're just saying, hey, I've seen something. I see something there that you're struggling with. And and it's sin and it's gotta be dealt with. And so the response that is being looked for here is what? To confess, to agree. And what does that require? It requires humility, which is what is required to be in the kingdom of heaven, right? And so I'm walking with a sense of, oh yeah, I could sin. And oh yeah, I probably have sin in my life. And sometimes there's blind spots and I don't see it. And I'm going to need someone to help me see it. And when they do, I need to be humble about it. And I need to be quick to confess. Oh, sure. Now, that's just an attitude, an approach, a perspective on it. But this is what healthy hearts do. They respond that way uh, to these things. They go, yeah, sure, I could have sinned and... um, and so let me examine that. Let me sit with you and consider and look at it, right? And if I don't see it, I'm willing to talk with you and look and try to, try to, um, to see it if I don't see it. And so this is just an attitude and approach. And so what is the sin that we're looking for? What is it that we, that we consider? You know, this passage, I've seen it used as a way to uh, try to approach a grievance with another Christian. Um, they wronged me, you know, um, I'm upset at them. And so this verse, this passage allows me to go after them and I can confront it. And again, the person's not the problem. Sin is the problem. And so I'm attacking sin in their life, yes. But my goal is what? To win them over. That's the approach. So some of the sin, there's different lists in the New Testament, just so we're aware of what sin is. Ephesians 4 and 5 give us some indication in those verses. Honesty is important. Stop lying to each other. Tell our neighbors the truth. Don't sin by letting anger control you. So anger issues um, are in there as sinful behavior. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work. So dishonesty in work or employment or employer or whatever, dishonesty in general. Don't use foul or abusive language towards others. You're supposed to be helpful, encouraging, uplifting. Um, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. Those are some things, those are some behaviors that we're we're supposed to be moving away from and not exemplifying. In chapter 5, there should be no sexual immorality or impurity or greed among you. No obscene jokes, foolish talk, coarse jokes. So anyway, there's some ideas there, some indication. Now, I've watched people use this passage, go to another Christian, you sinned against me. And through the process comes to light that no, it really wasn't sin. It was just an irritation. It was a frustration. You didn't like them. You don't like them. You didn't like what they did. They bother you. But sin is a whole different issue. And so sorting that out is part of this process. Is the accusation legitimate? That's why bringing in other people is important. Um, that two or three witnesses go back, goes back to the law of Moses. Moses said no one's going to be condemned or uh, pronounced guilty just because one person said they did something. There's got to be this collective, this group, this, um, you know, um, testifying to it. And so if you can't convince the person that they're in sin, then you bring other people to ensure that you're right. Not just that, but that communication's happening. And if you're still running into this unwillingness to confess, then it escalates and it goes to church leadership and then ultimately the church leadership may say, you're out of the church, you can't be a part of the body anymore because you're not walking correctly, right? You're not walking in humility and you're not agreeing And so, um, this is a tough issue. Obviously, it's difficult, and at times it happens, and it needs to happen, right? But just remember that the goal is that first interaction to help them see and agree and confess. And so, as we go to others regarding the things they've done, how we handle that's really important. If I go to my wife with an accusational tone, you did... And I'm pointing, I don't very often get a responsive confession, and maybe that's because my approach. So I need to have some skill at going to others and addressing these things, and winning that. Winning that battle against sin is to help them see, help them understand and be able to agree. That allows for change, and that is what Jesus is looking for. Next, He gives the authority for the church to make these kind of decisions and judgments verses 18 and 19 just say that where Jesus says if you make a decision in this regard regarding a person's behavior they're not willing to confess they're in sin and it's wrong and they're they're not repentant in a sense or they're willing to agree and come back from that that ultimately you have the authority to move them out of your uh, community or your fellowship and that's what those last two verses are regarding those verses get cherry-picked sometimes and to Act like the church has the authority to do anything. And if the church says something, it's all right. And this is very specific, okay, regarding these kinds of issues. Jesus is giving the authority for the church and for us as believers to win these battles against sin. In this interaction, in this teaching, the apostle Peter, who's a pretty sharp guy, um, he does speak first and think later, but he's a smart guy. And he watches and he listens and Jesus has been teaching a lot. He's been with Jesus a lot and he picks up on these little details that he needs clarifying. He needs clarification on because he knows they're going to affect his ability to live in obedience to what Jesus is teaching. And so Peter's very smart and insightful. And the next thing he does is he goes to Jesus and asks that clarifying question. Because Peter notices in Jesus' description of how to deal with sin That Jesus made the caveat that if I go to a person and I interact with them and I share with them the sin, if they agree, right, if they confess, agree, I have to let them back. (laughs) Now, Jesus said you've won them back, but Peter's hearing, I have to let them back, right? (laughs) So Peter knows this is involving something that's not easy to do, and that's forgiveness, because if somebody's wronged me, okay, that's one thing. If I go point it out to them and they agree to it, now it's on me. I have to forgive. And so the last skill that we see in this passage that we need to do if we're going to win the fight against sin is we've got to learn how to forgive, 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 forgive. Okay, here's Peter's question. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Um, Again, Peter notices. Forgiveness is involved. And so Jesus, if I've got to follow this process and the person agrees, he's thinking ahead, right? How many times I got to go through this with the same person? And so he says a number that he believes will get him an attaboy or a star from the teacher. Seven times he thought Jesus would say, oh man, Peter, boy, that's really great. I was hoping you'd just do it once, you know? But man, that's awesome that you were thinking ahead and you saw this coming and you, you kind of uh, put a number out there that, that's really impressive. Peter, you're at the top of the group. Um, you're star pupil for the day. You get, you get a star and you get a reward. Go, go get an ice cream, you know? I don't know, but I know that's what Peter's thinking here. It's how he's uh, approaching it. But then Jesus' response is not what Peter's expecting. And uh, probably honestly, it was a little... Uh, disappointing to him in verse 22 Jesus says no not seven times Jesus replied but 70 times seven now I don't know why Jesus requires that we do some math here because I'm not very good at math and uh you know philosophy and principles and all that I could get but math I got to sit down get my calculator out but I think 70 times seven is 490 is that right okay so, 490 times, Peter, you get to forgive the same person for the same thing if they confess, that is, they agree. Yep, I did that again. And knowing that Peter, that this would blow his precious little mind, right? And he would go into a, a swirl of, you know, maybe pass out. Whoa, you know, this is too much, it's overwhelming. And so Jesus tells a story. Peter, let me help you understand this and why that's what's required. And so he tells a story of a king who had a servant who worked for him, who's a manager, who owed him millions of dollars. And so the king calls this guy in to hold him to account. He got to pay up. And the guy says, I don't have the money. I can't do it. And so the king says, well, I'm gonna sell you, your wife, your son into slavery until you pay this off. That's what you did in these days. And so uh, the guy uh, is overwhelmed and he gets down on his knees and he begs. The king not to sell him and his family into slavery. Please have mercy on me. Well, the king has a moment of softness and his heart softens to this guy. And he says, okay, I'll forgive the debt. You don't have to pay it. Well, this guy is relieved, obviously overwhelmed. He leaves the king's presence and he's walking home. He sees a guy that owes him $1,000. And he goes up that guy and he says, I need the money now. And the guy goes, well, I don't have the money. Uh, Please please give me some time to pay it. Nope. Calls the police, thrown in jail. Well, some of the other employees of the king see this guy's actions. They know what happened, and they see what he does. And they go tell the king, and the king pulls the guy back in and throws him into slavery and judges him severely. See, the reason that we have to forgive so many times is because we've been forgiven so many times. You've been forgiven more than 490 times by God for the same thing. You know you have. So we just don't have the option to withhold that forgiveness from others because we'd be like that manager. So Peter goes, oh man, Not easy, but I get it. So how do we forgive 490 times, which is a ridiculous amount of times? How do we do it? Well, we walk in humility before God. We continue to be aware of the forgiveness that we have received and continue to require. We love others and we learn to love others by loving letting others off the hook. We love showing mercy. Just love it. If I can show somebody mercy, if I can let them off the hook for something they did wrong, just makes me happy, makes my day, right? We learn to love that. Make sure your heart is healing from the sin that's been done to you. I know I've noticed in my own life that wounds and sin that's been done to me can cause a a problem with my obedience or my ability to be obedient to God. And to treat others the way i should i have a hard time living up to his challenge and his requirements of me to forgive others when I have a heart that 's wounded and hurting right and so instead of being patient with somebody, I get angry, I respond the wrong way and i 've noticed over the years that that 's a heart problem, and I have to acknowledge it and, and kind of deal with it um, and, and that 's not easy but it's, but i 've come to that realization, and so I recognize in a church like this of people that are childlike people wanting to walk by faith, turn away from sin, live for Jesus, stay humble, that we struggle to be obedient. Then we end up setting bad examples and the whole thing goes wrong. And so how do we do that? How do we overcome that? And I think part of it is to just acknowledge that sometimes our hearts are hurting and we've got wounds that are unaddressed and that's causing us to set a bad example and to continue to struggle with sin that we don't want to struggle with and that we want to overcome. And so We have a ministry here called Celebrate Recovery, and that's really what it's about. It's about hurts, habits, and hangups, which we all have, Um, and it has a process to go deep enough with God, with relationships with other people where I can be transparent and I can uh, expose and I can find out where some of those wounds are and those hurts are, and I can experience the healing of God in those areas. And then, as healing occurs, It's amazing how obedience follows. I don't know how you're doing in your fight against sin. I don't know how you're doing in all of this with conflict and dealing with all of that. But I know it's hard and I know that our hearts need to be healing and healthy if we're going to do it God's way and if we're going to be the church he wants us to be. And so through CR, we've been doing it enough years now that we're starting to see some testimonies come out of that where there's healing occurred. And so I just want you to watch a testimony by Scarlett Driver, of some of the healing that's occurred in her life.
1: My name is Scarlett, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I currently graduated from the 12 steps of Celebrate Recovery by working through the habit of unforgiveness. Before recovery, I knew very little about Jesus and struggled with faith. I was carrying burdens and was lost. It became very natural for me to hide my pain behind a fake smile. I was taught that showing emotions was a sign of weakness. Throughout my childhood and into adulthood, I was deeply hurt by those I trusted the most. I found myself questioning my worth. I began to harden my heart to make sure no one else got close. This was the only way I could protect what was left of me. When my daughter was born, she had many health issues, from hip dysplasia to seizures and two surgeries to help correct her vision, all before she was the age of four. I was overwhelmed as I was working a full-time job while raising my son. My husband's work kept him away for many days at a time. I was home by myself with my young son when my daughter all of a sudden quit breathing and turned blue. This was her first grand mal seizure. I didn't want to take the chance of losing my daughter by waiting for emergency assistance when it was some distance to get to her. I panicked and decided to rush her to the hospital myself. As I was driving, all I could think to do was start praying, asking God not to take my girl. I know he didn't know me, but I had hope for a miracle. Today, my 11-year-old daughter is healthy and my husband's working closer to home, but I still had a habit of pushing people away. The years of pain started to make me bitter, and I still didn't know Jesus Christ. It wasn't until I found Celebrate Recovery that soon changed. At first, I was in denial of the program. I spent years with this pain and always running from it. How is this going to change everything? You can't heal a wound by saying it's not there, Jeremiah 6:14. Slowly, my protection wall was coming down as I met God's people. Mary, John, my sponsor, and so many others took the time to help me understand what it's meant to be a Christian and the importance of having Jesus Christ in my life. Celebrate Recovery was providing healing so I could have a relationship with Jesus. The stronger my relationship was, the more my heart changed. I started to find light through all the darkness, but I soon experienced the battle of Satan the old feelings were starting to come back. as was dealing with doubt and confusion. I was being pulled in two, di- two directions. Quitting came across my mind many times. The strength of my husband and 12-step ladies helped me understand that I don't have to do this alone. I finally came to my breaking point and gave up my will. I no longer wanted to be in control and asked God to take all my burdens. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. On March 4, 2023, I found strength and courage to reach out to my sister to discover she too was the enemy of Jesus Christ. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds, Psalms 147, 3. Freedom from my unforgiveness was learning to let go of the harm that was done to me. It was not God's will, patterns were being broken, I was becoming a better mother, wife, sister, and friend. By practicing healthy boundaries, I am slowly learning how to trust again. I am more honest with myself by learning to accept and cope with the things that were out of my control. I have learned to take it one day at a time and focus on the small steps versus in trying to figure it all out. Happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. By trusting in Jesus and understanding God's forgiveness, I was ready and was baptized on April 30th, 2023 with my daughter. God has answered my prayers by helping me become the person I was meant to be. A broken heart can be healed and turned into beauty and purpose. Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners, Mark 2.17. I am simply churning from my sin to God. Even though my journey has just begun, I will continue to improve since my trust is in Jesus Christ, as well as a daily inventory of the 12 steps of silver recovery. As a new believer, it's never too late to follow Jesus. Thank you to everyone that has walked beside me. God knew I wasn't meant to walk alone.